0: Hello, really welcome to MHTV tonight and um, we've got some fantastic guests today and um, we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter, we're going to be talking about lots and lots of issues that affect health and well-being and students' um, lives. Um, so we'll start off by introducing everyone, obviously I'm Nikki. can I introduce my lovely colleague Vanessa?
1: Hello everyone, it's Vanessa Garrity. Um, tonight looking forward to this evening, tonight I'll be um, quieter than usual because we've got quite a big panel So I'll be covering the social media. So um, we'd love you to ask questions and join in the discussion generally. Nothing's off the table, really. Um, If you want to join in, you can either join in on Facebook by liking the Unite MHNA page and commenting there, or you can join in on Twitter by following MHTV hashtag and posting your questions there
2: for us.
0: Yeah, and we're very lucky. I'll go around the group. They don't know which order I can see them in, so it's going to be a surprise for them. But I will start with Bertha. Can you introduce yourself and let us know what you've been up to?
2: Okay. Um, Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Bertha Matute, and I work as lead nurse for quality and practice at and Borders Partnership Trust. I've been a mental health nurse for 14 years now, and prior to that, I was a teacher for 10 years. Um, I also am part of um, the Dennis group at the RCN, and the group was formed um, and named after Sharon Dennis, who was first uh, BME Mental Health Nursing Director. And uh, the group is made up of mental health nurses from the RCN, also people with lived experience of mental health services, And we look at how we can kind of ensure that um, there's uh, equality and inclusion in mental health policy, research, and mental health leadership. And my passion is around practice development, uh, inclusion, and especially BME leadership inclusion. Yeah, That's fantastic. And
0: don't forget to pile in with questions, everybody. So we'll go to Shanaz.
3: Hi, I'm Shanas Possinger. I'm a psychology graduate and I recently finished my master's in human factors for inclusive design. Um, for those of you who don't know, human factors is about creating kind of um, optimal s- processes and systems as well as products for people. I currently support the nursing digital curriculum at the University of Nottingham, where I'm also a staff sponsor for our student BME network. And I'm part of our working group in the School of Health Sciences looking at decolonizing the curriculum, which is really about taking a sort of educational change approach to inclusivity um, and inclusive curriculum design. Fantastic. We're
0: so lucky. And Yannick, last but not least, obviously.
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Yannick Yelipende, and I am currently an applied neuropsychology master's student. I'm also a psychology graduate. I am um, so aside from that i'm also a hca at a hospital in uh, bristol a mental health hospital in bristol and also the founding director of black people talk which is an initiative that aims to support the mental health and well-being of the black community uh through psychoeducational and therapeutic peer support groups so um currently we're offering more of the academic chapter of the initiative so we're at universities we're at two universities currently and and currently in discussion with three others and uh we are um approaching the end of the session so um for this particular academic year we're at the end of our sessions um and uh we're really excited about having further sessions next academic year.
0: Fantastic. So one of the reasons we first started um, thinking this would be a really good idea was thinking about the way um, society and culture is at the moment. And the fact that we're lucky enough to be in a situation where people are talking about um, issues which have been painful for forever. And we're finally getting to a stage where we're actually talking about the experience of people who are white. The experience of people who have um, diversity, who are people of color, and we're finally actually getting to a place where that's coming into all the different agendas. So we'll be looking at um, student experience, but we'll also be looking at nursing experience because we've had um, situations where students have been um, misinformed, maybe about their rights and their the expectations for them and, and for their for their for their humanity and their human choices. So one of the things I'd like to just ask around at the panel uh, to begin with, just to just to kick us off. Um, and nothing's out of bounds so please feel free to ask us anything if we can answer you we absolutely will um is um some nursing students felt that um they were discouraged from going on um, black lives matter marches for this idea that it would be too political and i think maybe i'd like to come to bertha first on that to say you know as a as a a leader in nursing background what, what would you say if a student was concerned about an issue like that
2: Hey, uh, thank you, Nikki. Uh, I think with the protest, like uh, Black, Black Lives Matter, it's adra- addressing social injustice. And a, 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 as a nurse who's compassionate and caring, addressing social justice is definitely something that I would encourage. And be nothing that says that you cannot go on such a march like Black Lives Matter, but what I would definitely say uh, as a piece of advice is that while you are on the march, ensure that you are remaining on the right side of the law, because then if you go on the wrong side of the law and you do get uh, arrested for breaking the law, then that can affect not just your nursing student, but your professional career as well. So there is definitely nothing wrong with uh, joining in. And there are different ways of joining in as well. I think uh, Shanaz, you can come in and kind of share some of the ways that they can join in if, if they don't want to kind of physically go and maybe um, be worried that they might get caught up in something that is illegal.
3: Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, as a student, while you're still attached to the university, you can um, become what we would call um, a student acting as an agent of change. Um, So you can get involved either with your your networks, so BME networks, other cultural networks, um, engage with people like me who are in the university, working on inclusivity projects. We're very much perspective taking. We very much want the student. Um, perspective. We want you to work on projects with us that will also give you excellent opportunities to evidence your leadership, um, which can help you in terms of promotion and how you progress when you leave um, academia. But also from a personal perspective, um, I'm I'm going to pursue a, a professional doctorate. Yannick also has hopes of pursuing a professional doctorate. And so for us, We weigh up whether we participate in in demonstrations and things like that against um, kind of any risk that we may see to our professionalism and where we're most effective. Sometimes we may make the decision that actually we think there's too much risk in going to that particular thing. We're we're more effective in our meetings with people either like Bertha in the NHS, our supervisors. Um, For me, feeding into um, equality and diversity committees at the university. Um, you know, working with those sorts of groups. So it's a choice that you you definitely have to kind of think about and weigh up. Um, just because you don't go to a protest doesn't mean that you're not fighting for social injustice. There's many methods. And equally, if you choose to go to a protest, which is a great thing, I think it was President Obama recently said that we need both. We need people to advocate in the halls of power and we need that social presence as well. So by all means, get involved in any conversations that you you think are interesting and that you'll be effective in but yes always keep your keep your mind on on your passion and your vacation and that you don't want that to come into question mm.
0: yannick did you want to add anything you don't have to it's not the law <laughs> i think you've meted yourself
4: yes i think Sh- um, burden should has definitely covered this extensively um yeah they they have everything covered i think i um I would, I would agree with both sides. I think it's, um, I personally would definitely would want to um, go to that protest. I understand that there is an element of volatility there that you never know what happens, as Shinazma mentioned earlier on. You never know what happens. And so um, there are many ways that you can do things while being safe. Um, stepping out into those type of situations is inadvertently a gamble. I think you, um, yeah, if anything were to happen, um, and cases aren't necessarily always taken individually. It's It now becomes a crowd control situation, and you could easily find yourself caught up in something. So there's also that to consider. Consider Probably it'll be good to look. I think on – there was a website I've completely forgotten what it actually is now. But there are some tips in terms of when you show up to those types of situations, where you position yourself, things to look out for, situations to – um, avoid in that particular case. So, um, yeah, I would, I would, if I am, if I personally were to go into those situations, I would definitely look out for that and plan my entire plan, the entire process as much as I can. I mean, obviously you can't Mm. plan the entire thing because there are, um, very many variables involved, but yeah, I would basically do that.
0: Yeah. So what what the NMC say, what your NMC code of conduct says is that you shouldn't bring the profession into disrepute, but, being um, somebody who advocates for social justice is your job. So however you choose to do that, if you do that through organizing, through committees, through giving other people opportunities to speak, through going on marches, find your find your own niche, exactly as Shanaz was saying, you know, everyone finds their own way. But don't feel that you can't say what's in your heart, because that's not, you know, nursing is not about putting, you know, putting a gag on you. It's about helping you to be the person that you want to be. You know, the opportunities are there for you. If you want to be an advocate, then you have to learn how to speak up. Um, and sometimes you need to get out there and sometimes you need to be strategic. You can do both. You don't have to do one thing or the other. But I, I would really, I mean, I was very much, I went to a, a university that was very much about nursing being like, you know, being a good girl. We can see how that turned out. But, like, you know, you are neutral, you are passive, you are professional. And that's not what professional means. No other professional group behaves this that way or the way that people suggest nurses should. I wondered if Vanessa wanted to come in on this at all.
1: No, I just really agree. I think it's a really important point what's been made about, you know, not needing to go out and protest to kind of protest against social justice. I think you can be an introvert and still, you know, fight against social justice. And equally, you can be out there, um, you know, directly I think you know each to their own but I think like has been said as long as everybody's contributing I mean social media is obviously you know a marvellous vehicle now isn't it for getting your message across um you know and having quite a significant reach and I think like Nikki says I was brought up in an era um in mental health nursing of not protesting against things but I've always, um, you know, believed that mental health nursing is linked to social justice, inextricably linked to it, really. And I don't think we can advocate for people if we're, you know, if we're not out there kind of speaking out and speaking up for other people as well. I think that's part of our job. It's part of our job as individuals, and it's part of our job to speak up for people who don't have voices as well, so, as well as obviously on a population level, so. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think the other thing that Yannick said was really valuable as well was this idea that do it smart, check out your website, see so if you've never been on a march, my, my main piece of advice, is go, for, go for a wee first. <laughs> I, know I sound like everyone's grandma right now, but if you're going to be stood around and you're going to get kettled, which is where you get kept in one area, make sure you have gone, <laughs> because particularly in COVID times, there's no shops open, you can got to just nip out. So just mm. be aware of actually what you're signing up to. Um, And don't forget as well, you have stewards on marches. So you have people that you can ask for help if you're in trouble. And you'll also also have somebody who is disability access. So if you have mental health issues and you want to protest or you want to raise your voice, then contact the march organiser and make sure that you are in an area where you have space. So maybe if you're concerned about being in a crowd or you have physical issues that mean you need to have a bit more space, those things should be provided for now. So make sure you ask for those things and you can have them. All right. So the other thing we were going to talk about is um, the experience of um, students in practice and at universities. So maybe we we start by going back to universities. So the experience of um, students, students of colour, particularly in universities. So obviously Shanaz and Yannick have been students very recently. I won't say that we haven't. Everyone else, but perhaps <laughs> it's something that you could talk to us about about your experience and about how important it is to have um, spaces for people to
3: share their experience. Yeah, Alex, do you want to go first, or yeah. should I? <laughs> um,
4: I think you should, if you don't mind.
3: <laughs> so yeah, so I I've been to two separate different um, two different universities. Uh, one for my bachelor's, one for my master's. Um, when I was doing my bachelor's, I I was in an environment where I experienced racism, um, sometimes overt, um, at university and also, you know, in the city as well, where we were studying as well. Um, I do have to make the point that I never, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, because this might not be all student experiences, I didn't experience a sense of the organization being racist or any of my professors or academics um, giving me giving me those sorts of vibes. It was more that you can't control what students from many different backgrounds <laughs> um, bring to university with them in terms of their values and their ideals. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest to quote some of the things I had. My, my parents are divorced. I had people ask me if I knew my dad because they knew that my dad was black. I've had people ask me how I can afford to live in a certain area. I have overheard jokes like what's black at the bottom and white at the top, society. Um, you know, these were all really <laughs> upsetting things because I, I, I'm i from Birmingham originally, so I grew up in a city where I'm not saying there's no racism, but it's a very multicultural city. I hadn't experienced much before I came to university. I also studied as a mature student as well, so on some level I feel quite lucky that I had perhaps a a stronger sense of self than I may have if I'd have gone at 18 um, and a little bit more resilience to that but then the downside was also because I was a little bit older I was not going to entertain fake friendships or entertain people sort of around me that weren't for me and so I did find my undergraduate experience although I had a lot of academic success and um you know, I had great professors who who nurtured me and things like that. My social experience was very isolating and lonely. And I kind of felt when I, when I passed out and I left to go and do my master's, I made certain choices around where I would do that based on really a need to kind of heal, to not walk out of the door every day and, and be reminded that my skin was brown because that wasn't how I grew up, you know. <laughs> um, and so... It does happen, students. There are people like me at universities who are Mm. trying to break down those barriers. If you have over instances and you can trace it, report the person as well. There are are rules, there are policies, you know. Um, If it happens in a more social endeavour, like, you know, it's harder to trace, then, um, you know, Keep your eye on the prize and do call it out if you have the confidence, if you feel that you can. I feel like a a common question that we have, yesterday I was actually in a meeting with black women in academia, lots of um, people who were senior academics um, who had really paved the way, (laughs) to be honest for me, and they were saying similar sorts of things and even those questions were coming up against people who, who were in the teaching position was like, how do I call it out? And what I would say is your instincts know. You know when someone being uh, biased towards you on this mm. basis, don't question yourself um, mm. go with your instincts and talk to someone about it. that's the main thing, even if it's not to get someone in trouble with an action orientation talk to someone for you so you feel better, so you feel less isolated that mm. so uh, that's a good segue for Yannick because his intervention is all about talking, so do you want to talk about your experiences and how you got there?
4: Yeah, thank you. Um Shanaz definitely covered that beautifully. That's a beautiful rendition of your just like if you in experience. I um I think it's a great thing to have um Shanaz and I on board in, in terms of to discuss this because we obviously come from relatively different paths mm-hmm. in life and different experiences. So, um whereas some of my experience echoes what Shanaz mentioned, you know, being a mature student going into university, I um my, I guess my mine was a little more traumatic. I think it's I think in um it's it's first of all I transferred into my second year. And prior to that I was at in London, at Burbeck, which is like a um an evening university where it's like it pretty much the majority of the students are mature. So like the oldest person in my class was a um a lady and she was 70 years old. And um and then the youngest person was twenty-three. So it mm. was, it was, it was a very, mm, it was, and we were all from different paths walks of life and we were all different in a way. So I guess the fact that we were all just different, the bonding element was our differences and that we, and they were almost celebrated. But then when I came into, to university of Bristol, it was, it was, I walked into a very homogenous class. It's, it's, uh, it, it just, everyone was, it was a very, it was somewhat of an alien um, environment. Obviously I came into my second year and um. So I had to jump in and get right into it academically. There was no first year where you can just like really figure things out and then do things the right way. Um, no, it was just, you know, go for it. And um, so I felt very alienated as, a, as the only black male student in a class of about 140 something students. Wow. Um, I had um, lucky for me, I had I found a couple uh elements within that class, there were that, you know, and Shanaz being one of them, am um, a mature student just like me. Um, mm-hmm. So that, honestly, that group called us all the group of misfits. That that group was responsible for a lot of just de-escalation of, of, or is responsible for a lot of things that could have gone, or responsible for just keeping me contained and preventing a lot of things from going really bad. Um, and then um, I was living privately, so it, it was it was very much a situation where I would um, go home and then go to university, and it was two separate worlds. So already that, as soon as the class would finish, I would be out. I wouldn't walk around, I wouldn't stay around. I didn't know what, there was, for a very long time, I didn't know what the library even looked like because little microaggressions, like for example, stepping out, walk in. I, I, I say it's the phenomenon of being, of being visibly invisible. It's like I'm a big black guy with dreadlocks. You will see me. You will you will see me. You will obviously notice me. But everyone is acting like I don't exist. Um, it got to a point that I developed these these blinders like horses do when they and during horse races. Like I didn't look around because I was like, I'm I don't want to bother looking around and seeing the looks and then the the swift turns and all that. I just I didn't want to I didn't want to. So in many instances, I'd see a friend, a friend would be walking from a very, from far away, waving frantically, Yannick, Yannick. And unless they actually say my name, I wouldn't hear anything, I wouldn't see them because I'm I'm just focused on getting from point A to point B. Uh, little things like, for example, I would walk and then people wouldn't hold the door open despite the fact that they see me. They, I know you see me, I'm behind you, but you wouldn't hold the door open. You would just walk through. So it was just a combination of that. And then to add on top of that, I had some issues with student finance, which they sort of didn't want to fund my year. So I had to, there was a very long time where I had to sort of self-fund my, the start of my for my second year. And it happened, the same thing happened in my third year. So there were, on top of that, my experience was very much, there were also other structural things that made it that it was just very difficult. And then coming into university, of course, I'm, di- I'm, I am uh, I came in with uh, being diagnosed with depression and anxiety. So on top of that, it just makes for a very volatile cocktail. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was my undergraduate. So I managed to emerge with my two-one miracle. Um, Mm -hmm. I emerged with that and, uh, I was really happy. I worked really hard on that. Um, I, but then when that happened, something about wanting to go, right. Something about wanting to become a clinical psychologist and seeing the applied neuropsychology course and just Mm -hmm. knowing that I need to go for that because it's like it's 80% of the course is taught by actual clinical psychologists and neuro, and clinical neuropsychologists and stuff. So it's a very good way to get that sort of experience and, and to sort of see what the profession really is about. Mm-hmm. So I jumped on that. But then I also decided to develop, um, to develop this initiative for Black students. It initially started with Black male students to sort of have a space to, ha- to talk and to have a community where our shared experience because I knew that I wasn't alone in my experience. I knew that a lot of it, a lot of what I went through was was similar to what other people were going through. And I know that as social, as social creatures, um, getting that cathartic release from just being in space with each other and to talk and to relate to each other, it, it, it's not the silver bullet type cure to a situation, but it is a good way to approach things from a very preventative standpoint. Um, so I developed that and then, you know, slowly trickle- it became black women. So called it black men talk and then black women talk. Then we would have black men and women talk sessions where we'd bring everyone together and sort of like obviously celebrate the differences and then celebrate the similarities and sort of understand each other. And um, so, yeah, that's we were we've been running for two academic years um, and sort of evolved into into black people talk now, which is sort of spreading over nationally at universities all over the, the country so out of i guess the the silver lining in this entire situation is yes i'm not alone in my experience the uh, the majority if not all black students will experience this especially if you're in a sort of like russell group higher like type of um elitist type of university you will experience that it, it, it just depends on you will experience that and then you'll experience that in many sort of settings and um but out of that, something came out that gave me that cathartic release and feel like I'm actually doing something for my community. So uh, mm-hmm. in a long winded answer, this is that this was my experience at university.
0: That's amazing. And and on Twitter, people will be able to find Black People Talk.
4: Yes. Um, yeah. So. Just, um, yeah, I think so it's we tweet
0: that to make sure that people can see it because it's important, isn't it? When somebody does something amazing, you should celebrate it. It's good for everybody. So um, I'm not sure um, if Bertha wants to talk about universities, but you talk about whatever you like, <laughs> and we'll come to we'll, we'll come to you for a bit. And then and Vanessa's already getting some questions through. So okay, um, what do yeah, you think?
2: I think um, experiences of BME nursing students in practice it's something that can be quite challenging. Mm. And I, I think I will share my personal experience as a nursing student. So like um, uh, Yannick and Shanice, I also went to train as a mature student. Uh, first, I think this uh, the incident happened in one of my earlier placements. At university, we we hadn't had much talk or discussion around um some of the discrimination that we might come across out in practice. So I was at the placement um, a white student, a nursing student as well from my university, who we were good friends. Um, she was late uh, quite a lot to the placement. And then one day, a couple of weeks in, I was late for the first time because I had car problems. And when I walked into the handover, the nursing charge then kind of really told me off about it in front of everybody. I felt really embarrassed, but the most thing I still remember up to this day is I felt really angry because I felt the injustice that my colleague who was late several times, would just walk into handover, sit down, and it was never addressed like that. So I, after the handover, I went straight to the managers. I challenged it. The nurse was brought in, we had to talk about it. And I think as well, when I always reflect back on this, was it because I was a mature student, I had life experiences, I was able to challenge that. So I'm really passionate around encouraging students that when you are out in practice, I know in my organization, we wouldn't tolerate anything like that. When you are out in practice, you do not accept any behavior like that, you, if you feel you are being discriminated a, a, against, I know it can be difficult to talk about it, but you need, you need to find somebody, find your your mentor, talk to your mentor about it, or the ward manager if you're on a ward, or you can find somebody like myself within the organization. You always have senior nurses. Also, the moment you do go into placement, establish who are the BAME network uh, people usually a lot of uh, uh, in my organization, and I know organizations I've worked in in the past, they have locality BAME um, leaders as well who you can speak to because it's, it's something that you cannot do that. Even our nurses, we encourage them to to speak. Our BAME nurses know that they can speak and challenge such behavior. And if if you are brave enough to challenge it with the person, I always advise that, you know, ask the person to speak to them in private, because sometimes people will show off if there's an audience and you don't want to have a back and forth happening with an audience. And then when you speak to them, just say to them, I I feel the way you are treating me does not align with the values of the organization because there is no organization that has values that allow discrimination. And you don't even have to say it doesn't align with your values or their values because you don't know their values and they don't know your values. But definitely what you have in common with that person is that you have the same organizational values. So you need to say, I feel that it is not aligning with my values. And I think, as well, uh, another thing that does happen in practice a lot, unfortunately, to our student nurses is receiving discrimination as well from people who are on the wards, who are using the service admitted on the wards. And that can be quite um, challenging as well to students. And one thing I just want to say. To students, the way you feel is exactly the way experienced nurses feel as well. We are all humans. No one likes to be uh, discriminated against. So it is within your right to actually go and talk about it if, if, you, if you have been told the skill of how you address it. But I would always advise that maybe it might not be the best to kind of address it with with the person who's who's done that to you, but definitely don't keep it. Go and speak about it to your mentor. Go and speak about it to the nurse in charge because it's not acceptable. And also dependent on on how unwell the person is, staff will go and have conversations with the person around how that is not acceptable because I think sometimes there's this blanket thing that... uh, People who are um, in hospital, all people in hospital can say whatever they want because they are unwell. And Mm. it's it's, it's, Mm. it's not, not about that. So even nurses, we encourage our experienced nurses that when they do receive any discrimination as well from people we are looking after, they need to speak about it they need to speak to address it in supervision speak about it have some peer supervision and also complete even incident uh, forms of course it, it you we also the way we will um address it with the person depends on um it, it will be on an cuz it obviously depends on how unwell somebody is but it's something that it's never acceptable no matter who it is coming from and you don't need to take it and listen to it. And also, sorry, um, I hope I'm not <laughs> going Go for it. I'm yeah. known for that. And also, it's not even about you receiving that discrimination. Sometimes uh, students, especially with, um, I know with Black Lives Matters, it kind of um, really brought to the forefront what has been existing for <laughs> of uh some of the discrimination that happens out in practice and i know uh, some students uh i joined a call of um people who support students in practice and i heard how some students were saying they they do notice they they observe things happening in practice against bame nurses and mm makes it affects them it makes them feel uncomfortable and they start to think even if it's not being directed to them they start to think that could be me and it's not right and i always say um you should always maintain your values if you feel that something is not right it most probably isn't if you feel that you have to question that is the way that person is being treated right it's usually is it most probably it isn't. So also call it out, address it. Go and speak to somebody if you're not able to address it to the person who you've who you've observed doing that. But don't don't allow things like that. Never, never kind of always leave your values. If you see something that is not right, it is within your right to call it out. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's toxic, isn't it? yeah you know we don't we don't encourage people to to handle toxic um toxic materials without reporting it we don't ask you to lift up heavy objects without you know having manual handling training because this is a safeguarding issue it's to do with mm. your emotional safety and and the well-being and and the ability for everyone around you to thrive and if we don't have that none of us have that do you know what i mean and i think you're absolutely right to to say how frightening it must be for a a student nurse or a junior member of staff to see this and think if it can happen to this person who's all the way up here, nothing, I'll never get to a position where I will be safe from it. And that's horrifying.
1: Yeah.
0: Just absolutely horrifying. And the other thing I always find really weird about when you when you're thinking about reporting, um, I've come across lots of students who haven't wanted to report because they've been embarrassed. Yeah. And I think exactly as Bertha says, don't don't you carry somebody else's shame. If somebody is racist, that's their problem. Exactly. That's that's on them. They should be the person who's embarrassed. And I think sometimes with instant forms you have to write stuff down and it can feel like it sticks to you. Nobody who reads that form will think that. No. Please be reassured. I think we've got some questions come in as well, Vanessa.
1: Yeah, we have. We've got um, a question from Alfonso that um, I think was answered, really, but I was going to see if anyone else wanted to add anything. Um, So just to reiterate it, really, it's um, what advice would you give to students who might deal with difficult situations where a member of the public is being racist? So that's the first question. If there's any more comments on that. And shall I read the second one as well? The second one from Adrian is Why do you think there has been such a slow healthcare response to supporting ethnic equity, both in healthcare professionals and patient care outcomes? Which is something I must say, I've been thinking about recently myself. So, um, yeah, so two very different questions, really. And I'll throw that open to whoever wants to answer them.
3: Well, if I can chime in first, it's something I really reflected on when. Um, COVID happened and actually links into kind of your protest question I think to some degree because yeah. when it first hit the news and um, the the inequities um in in COVID um uh, as as a trained person in the human sciences I was like we already know this it's already in the data it's in so many different datas you know and um And then I realized, oh, wow, you've become that desensitized because me and all of my friends were having this conversation in this kind of laissez-faire way. And then I facilitated a wobble room with our students who were either nationally deployed in their final year or whatever BME students. And I heard their stories and I frankly felt ashamed by how complacent I I had been, as a person of colour, who knows that data, and I think systemically we have become that complacent, this data was out there, we knew it, it's in various different factions of health, and um, protesting has made people realise that we actually need to get get ahead of this and we need strategies, we need to stop just accepting it and collecting data about it and and Mm -hmm. saying this is out there. so to clarify, a wobble room is a space that we created virtually in this instance um, for the students to come once a week for about uh, an hour and a half, two hours, and, and really just offload. It was just a safe space for BME students who were in um, in practice in health sciences to come and share anything, whether it was that they wanted to laugh, whether they were talking about being fearful of bringing COVID back to their children, whether it was about that they'd lost people, um, whether it was about how they were using meditation apps to cope with being on shift and in their breaks and fear. Um, And so, yeah, I I think for me, it really hit home. If I, as a person of colour who has a degree in psychology, has chosen to do something in inclusive design, clearly my career trajectory has been influenced by my need to address these problems because of what I face. If even I was complacent, um, and desensitized to it, then we. C- I can certainly see systemically how we we are. Um, and in terms of the practical um, implications in, in practice, I'll leave that to Yannick and to, to Bertha to talk about because you guys are you're on the wards. So I definitely mm. want to hear your experiences and what you think. Mm. Yeah, I don't know.
2: Yannick, okay. you go first, or. I go first. I, I think the first question on um, from members of the public, obviously, and advice on outside the clinical area, but inside the clinical area, if it is a visitor, um, it, you would expect to deal with it the way we would expect to deal with any discrimination from somebody who's admitted on the ward, and. Um, mm-hmm explained that, but I'm quite happy to, Adrian, if you need further information about that to to uh, contact outside of the session. The second question, um, why it's taken so long, uh, I think that's kind of the million dollar question, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, like what Shanae uh, says, that I think sometimes, a, a lot of times society becomes desensitized to yeah. the reality. So uh, I, I said I've been uh, a nurse for ten uh, for 14 years. So 10 years, I was mostly, uh, three years was inpatient uh, mental health acute wards. And then six years was in crisis teams. And um, I worked around a lot of BME nurses, a lot of BME practitioners in crisis team as well. I never thought about the inequality in leadership uh, at at all. Obviously, you have those talks that, oh, there's a job out in in applying for it. You won't get it. So I became a senior nurse four years ago. And I remember when it really struck me how this is uh, so apparent. Um, I had to go for a meeting uh, for my manager, which she couldn't attend in London. And when I turned up in the room, it struck me how in a room full of people there was no one else who looked like me mm. and suddenly hit me just how much this inequality exists within the leadership of the NHS and it's something that I'm quite passionate about and I think I've had a different experience because I think I've been lucky to work in organizations where they are very supportive around that. But still within my extended networks, I've heard stories of how you have a a brilliant band five nurse who's passionate, enthusiastic, excellent at their job. They get a white student nurse, they mentor them, the student nurse qualifies, they become the preceptor for that student nurse. The student nurse, a, a, a deputy ward manager post comes on the ward mm-hmm. for it. The student nurse, or I mean, her, her former student nurse who's now just finished their preceptorship goes for the job and they get the job and they become their manager. Mm-hmm. Following year, same cycle. And after a period of time, they stop applying for the jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, they just think, why, why should I? do that and this is not something that i've heard from one or two people but it seems to be a very you know a, a similar story all over and in terms of addressing it i, I know that they uh, there's been honest and um what can i say genuine uh appetite to address this for years now i know in 2015 nhs england uh established the Workforce race uh, okay. equality standards, race. and in the past five years, yes, there has been some improvements for the outcomes of um, of uh, BME uh, staff in terms of the recruitment pro- process, the disciplinary process, where they were always overrepresented. But still, there is so much that still needs to do, and I really, to Mr. me, really believes that with all Black Lives Matter protests, this time there seems to be a real kind of, it's not about um, It's not about doing more inquiries. It's not about producing more data. We know the data. You just have to work on to a, a most mental health acute wards and the staff representation tells you what the situation is about. I think now a lot of organizations are really committed to turn all the statistics, all the recommendations from the numerous inquiries into action. I think the real thing now is about there needs to be action, not inquiries after inquiries and reports and recommendations, but they need to be actions. And I know I, I can only I can speak for my organization that we are really kind of we are fortunate to have a leadership that is kind and compassionate and genuinely wants to see change so we are putting actions in place and i know other organizations are too so things like ensuring um there's kind of the hr processes are equal to to to, to people from all backgrounds to to achieve putting mentorship um, in place, having reverse mentorship, because that's quite a popular one where you have somebody, uh, a BME staff from maybe a lower banding mentoring a senior leader so that the senior leaders can really understand experience of the BME person and also having um, kind of a leadership that is really culturally aware Because an example I can give you when I was interviewing for kind of senior nurse leadership role is that in my culture, um, when you do something, when you do a project, you don't say I did this successful project. You say we did this project. And in, in, in Africa, we call it the spirit of Umundu. So in going in interviews, if I'm asked, tell us about a project that you did and it was successful, tell us, you know, what process you went through. I will say, oh, we did this. And they're like, we, you and who, I'll say me and my team. And they're like, no, tell us what you did. But then I, because of my culture, I, I, I believe that. And sometimes I believe that I don't have to change my values to fit into what things. So I can explain that, okay, I might have led this project, but for it to be successful is because I had the support of an amazing team. So it's things like that, that sometimes when BME staff, I, in an interview, although people want to, the panel needs to be aware that cultural differences can make uh, a big difference. Mm -hmm. Now a lot of organizations are using um, psychometric testing for higher bending uh, jobs. But when you think about some of the questions in those psychometric tests, they're not culturally, uh, <laughs> religiously sensitive. I I, I remember one, uh, uh, one job interview I went to a leadership post when the psychologist was giving me feedback and she was saying your answers were kind of confusing because they were like totally the opposite, you know? And then I said, but some of them were informed by my religion. So a question asking me, do you believe you have control of your future? Because um, my religion, I'm Christian. I don't believe I have control of my future. I believe God has control of my future. So I would say no, I totally don't have control. But then for someone else who might not have the same religion with me, have. but then it doesn't mean they are a better leader than me. We are both equally, but we're just coming from a different place. So I think it's about that. It's about really ensuring that um, th- those interview processes are also kind of culturally, religiously and, you know, uh, inclusive of everybody. And also I know some um, organizations are now, as part of the action that a lot of organizations are putting in place now, is also kind of really um recognizing the importance of BME stories, even at board level, because a lot of boards have like uh, a person's story for their board meetings. And I understand some organizations now, they also have a BME person come and tell their story yeah. and experience of racism. So I, I I I don't know whether I'm just a, a terrible optimist, but mm-hmm. I, I really believe that this time uh, things will speed up more than they have been happening in the past. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's really positive. I'm pleased you didn't feel that. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, Vanessa, is there another question coming?
1: Um, yeah, there's a question here on um, making the nursing curriculum more inclusive and looking at the experiences of BAME students. What would you? The question is, what would you say to academics and teachers? about how best they can make their teaching more inclusive and create safe spaces for VME students. So I know we've covered quite a few things there already, and particularly, like, I'm thinking about the wobble rooms that you talked about as well. Um, Is there anything else that you want to... um...
3: Yeah, so there's loads. I mean, Bertha's tipped her hat to a lot of them, so thank you, Bertha. (laughs) Um, Most universities have, at the very highest level, uh, some form of strategic priority in terms of creating a more inclusive curriculum, bridging some of the attainment gaps and generally creating a more um, inclusive environment in Nottingham. We're calling that effort um, Regulising regularizing ethnic presence in the curriculum and that's going on um, at school level really and and each program level uh, locally and we consult with students we're trying to co-design with students. so as Bertha said really, Get involved now is a great time um, in terms of the synergy and people supporting you. And I, in my first university, back when I was a student, like you guys in undergrad, I was involved with my widening participation teams. I I threw myself into that kind of work to overcome the problems um, as I saw them. I was like, if I feel like I can make a difference, then I can, I can kind of stick it out. And now I still do that. And my master's is informed by that. And like what Bertha said, like. she touched on a lot of things that are informed by psychological theory. So it's known in the literature that there's a difference in talkativity um, between different cultures, for example. Uh, The consideration of the interdependent self versus the independent self um, in terms of like what Bertha was saying, people that identify more as an individual versus those that um, identify as a group. Um, And again, when we look at pedagogy, so what that is, that is like the theory and um, approach to teaching and learning, which informs a lot of how your curriculums are designed, whether you you guys know it or not. We are thinking about... um, inclusivity in that so a, a one way in which we do that is via encouraging maybe assessment activities where students share stories so they can bring themselves to the curriculum things yeah. like active learning so you go out and you seek information that resonates with you that's important to you to satisfy the competencies in the curriculum um, more collaborative learning so it's less about somewhat a, a, kind of democratizing the classroom in a a way. It's just about someone standing there as the expert that you don't challenge, that's got a million publications. Rather, it's about, yes, you guys starting from an evidence base and then discussing it and talking about your experiences and how you feel it applies and um, bringing your different insights as a person and also culturally as well. Um, So there's a lot of work being done at all types, uh, all universities looking at creating more inclusive, curriculums um dismantling aspects like you know the interaction with the class system and genderism it, it's broader than just race and so what i would say to you guys is keep an eye out with what's going on at your institutions work with people we all one of our problems is that we when we want student feedback is trying to get you guys to stop having fun or being so busy with your course that you'll come and talk to us so look for those opportunities and work with us because we we've always got time to listen and get your Get
1: your vantage point, yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, one of the things for me, what we haven't covered, although I think Yannick kind of hinted at it earlier, was about intersectionality. And Nikki knows I always like to kind of throw this in, having worked in prisons. Because for me, you know, it's often there's often like um, a blanket response, um, based on ethnicity and um, and race, which is totally inappropriate. So, like for example, Um, having worked in female prisons, um, you know, where, you know, there's practice that's brought in that's supposedly quite informed, but it's very much geared towards male prisoners rather than, um, you know, female prisoners. And I guess, you know, like we were talking, there's all sorts of other factors like class, disability. Um, So how do we make, um, you know, how do we help, you know, help people have that kind of wider appreciation, really? Because um, I think for me it is quite important and although we're talking much more about race and ethnicity, I don't think we're talking enough about things like, you know, whether you are working class, whether you've got a disability and how all those things interact together. So I'm not sure it's a question, but just something that I wanted to throw in there at the end, really.
3: I agree totally, and I think that I'm biased because I come from a, a certain background um, in mm. terms of human factors. But for me, it's all about participatory um, designing of systems, designing of, uh, of resources, products, and that sort of thing. Um, we're doing a lot of work at my university where we are just talking to each other. We're doing it with staff and with students because, like what you're saying, one thing that, as a person of colour, I'm I've really got no time for is a, is a superficial appreciation of culture or race for me um you know i'll use yannick as an example because i know him personally um we come from we're, we're both black yes um mm-hmm. i'm mixed race for a start <laughs> we also mm-hmm. descend from different origins i'm of caribbean descent he's of african descent it's very yeah. different cultures very different mm-hmm. worldviews, very different mm-hmm. histories
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know so you need to listen to the stories of people and the detail And I think that's an important first step, really, is when you're dealing with inclusivity of any sort, listen first. I, as a person who comes from an inclusive design background, my focus is disability, it's ageing, it's it's inclusion across all the metrics. And for the groups that I'm not a part of, that's where I start from, a place of listening, both in terms of how I capture data and in terms of how I deal with people. Yeah, that's a
4: great answer. So... Yeah, hearing all of these and even though all the questions, there were so many instances that I, I definitely wanted to to jump in and respond. But then obviously Berta and Shanae is are much better placed in terms of, you know, the more of the policy creating side of things or the policy shifting side of things. But um it's uh yeah, I think from an academic standpoint, I think um there's this like I agree with you very much, Vanessa. Like there's this whole thing where it's it's a very blanketed. When you think about it, ethnic minorities and and um just it's a whole blanketed thing where it's just like it's a whole bunch of them. It's the others, and so just yeah. put them all it's one. Like- and their experiences are very much individual and very separate. Um, I think I think it's a thing where academically investigations and research on this particular topic when it comes to disaggregating just like these identities and instead of bunching them together into one disaggregate and i.e. just like keeping them separate um i think they it needs to change in the sense of these uh these um Pieces of research are not held up to the same standard or value as the others that are looking at the typical norm. Whether it's you're investigating just the if a student experience at a university, you say students, you look at all students. Like that is obviously a very top-down approach to looking at the issue. And what whoever in this world builds a pyramid from the top to the bottom that makes absolutely no sense. So when it comes to when it comes to these things. Um, disaggregating these studies and looking at things individual, look at black men, if you have the opportunity to, look at black men of Caribbean descent, of African descent, because those are different things. Look at Asian men, Asian men from a particular area, and Asian men from another particular area. And then once you have all these collections of studies, then build on top of that. Work on the similarities you found from one group or to another. And then that's slowly how you build a pyramid that it has a very bottom-up approach in terms of, and that really informs policy. Like I remember in my undergraduate, my um, dissertation was um, identifying the psychological effects of limbo on African economic immigrants. So, essentially, when you come as an African to, um, when you emigrate here to the UK and you're trying to regularize your, um, your status, your legal status, sometimes when you make your application to the home office, you can be in this position where you are, where you are made to wait. So, you're in this limbo period where you, you're not, you can't vote, you can't go to school, you can't do this, you can't do that, you just have to wait. Now, some people, it happens for two years, one year, six months. Some people, it happens for ten. So what happens in between then you are, you know, you come as an economic immigrant, I'm not saying asylum seeker or refugee, you come in as an economic immigrant and you think, okay, I want to, um, you know, I'm here, I want to do this, I'm ambitious, I want to do this and this and this, but you're stuck. You have a ceiling, a very thick glass ceiling. So you do none of that. So I was investigating the psychological effects of things that come about the learned helplessness, the the all of these various things, but I I picked a specific one and then obviously I will revisit this p this uh, undergraduate piece and i will at a later stage in my career i will actually do a study around that, and maybe do a collection of studies where it's like we can start this because i feel like this whole idea this whole immigration process and the psychological effects that it has on people is not necessarily investigated and it's not there's no literature around it i found nothing it was so hard To find stuff around that and but the psychological effects on people like you keep it's essentially you keep someone in in a cage for such a long time and then you release them into the world and then they never quite live up to that potential that they would have lived up to or it takes a very long time before they go through that and um obviously it comes from a personal story because i myself sort of went through that it's the main reason why i accessed university at a mature student level um so yeah it's um it's a very so that's what i did so studies like that i feel like at, the, at an academic stage um i remember asking my my supervisor do you think this will be do you think i could get a first with this now that already is telling of the fact that i would that i know inherently that people will not take this seriously and that potentially i am you know i am um telling this story to i am telling this particular story to someone that may not necessarily understand it and this happens i'm pretty sure it's funny but all of these all of these contexts in which we operate like shanaz and birder all of these contexts that we we uh, operate in are all just microcosms or reflections of each other um i remember if i put that my that story to the side when i first started my black men talk initiative um i i could have i submitted it to this thing it was like an outstanding award type thing but they basically award students for creating social action campaigns and um Mm. obviously you know you do the stuff you write a a really good piece and all that i got a distinction for the piece i wrote that talked about my initiative and then it came to the uh um to the interview process where you have to be interviewed by three people one person from uh, the particular industry that you uh, are, you know, your social campaign is within, and then two of the careers offices. Now, when I walked into the room, I was presented with a um, a white man in the middle and a white woman on and two white women on the side. So already, as someone that is going into a situation and is going to talk about how the university is not necessarily a is can be some somewhat of an oppressive environment for a student like me, I am going to dampen what I say. I'm not going to say what I say with my chest. And this reflects what Berta was saying in the sense of, mm-hmm. I'm not going to present the most confident self that I am. I'm going to talk. I'm going to lower my voice. I'm my, my voice is not going to be high in octaves. I'm not going to be as assertive as I would have wanted to be. Now, lucky for me, yeah. two of the people on that panel understood that. Well, I'm assuming they did because they marked me distinction for my interview process. Mm-hmm. But one person decided to, um, well, one person didn't necessarily understand that, and so they marked me down because I was hesitant, because I, I um, I wasn't necessarily my, I wasn't bringing my words out the right way. I was sort of all over the place. But understandable, you are a black man talking to university officials about how the university is failing you and all the other students and why what you have provided has been successful. And so the result of it was I missed out on a distinction and the award. I ended up having just a pass because whereas some people marked me, tw- two people marked me 25, the other p- person marked me 13, which significantly mm-hmm. dis- brought yeah. that down. Now, I decided I wanted to pursue that, but it didn't. But I didn't in the end because I was like, I, do, I just don't want to, I don't want to create ripples on this pond. Let me just get my degree and get out of there. And, but this is an example of it. It's a saying, and, it, and this echoes what happens as a HCA, obviously, I work in, in, in a mental health hospital, and I always see agency nurses and all the a lot of the agency nurses are always of black, are always black. They mm. are. And, and, I, and I asked myself and then I, I was having a conversation with a um, with a fellow worker and they were like, you know, sometimes these nurses, they come and you can tell that they don't really care. and I'm And, and in my mind, I said to myself, why? Why in why in the world would you care? When you come with all the hopes to go up and to rise, but you know there is a ceiling. So then, what you what are you going to do? You're going to go. You're you're going to become an uh, an agency worker where the money is good, and you're going to focus mm-hmm. on the money because there's no progression. And even if you progress, you're not going anywhere. So if there's no progression, you care less. So then you work you work as agency job, or, or you prefer to take night shifts. I've been working a lot of night shift recently, and I noticed. Obviously, you get paid a whole lot more. I've noticed there are a lot. There's a the population of black um, HCA and black nurses on night shift is significantly higher than during the day. It's a it's a it's just it's literally just deciding to um, you know I'm just gonna go for the money because I know that I'm not valued. So let me at least get something good out of this, which is the money, and that is very telling of the system. It happened in my university, and it happened in in. In the NHS and stuff, and this is very telling of the environment. And I guess that's what I wanted to
3: add.
0: It makes sense of decisions, doesn't it? These things are not accidental.
4: Not if at you all. keep,
0: if you keep not rewarding or pu- being punitive, then people make different choices. Mm. Yeah. Why is everyone surprised? <laughs> yeah. like
4: none of none of what has happened surprises mm. me. None of mm-hmm. none of the even sorry, I, I don't mean to keep going on, but even <laughs> the thing of even the thing of um you know, why is this such a why is why is this such a why are people dragging their feet in terms of um uh, you know, changing things within, you know, the, the whether it's a health services and all of that. Well, it's because, and then I'll be fully honest, I, in my opinion, one of the, it's not the whole reason, but one of the reasons is because there is an element of denial of what the true situation is. Um, the UK for the very longest time has been, you know, it's been the place that has been considered as the most accepting place in, in you know, for ethnic minorities and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, this is so that whole idea of if, if it's not overt racism, then it doesn't exist. The system, the systemic racism, is being completely ignored. It doesn't exist because we're not, you know, having pitchforks and throwing stuff at people. Um, that so because that doesn't exist. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why. Whereas we, we obviously know that because of all because of the way systemic racism is set up, this is going. None of the none of it surprised me, and it's sad that it didn't surprise me at all. None mm-hmm. of it surprises me. I mean, even think about the fact that um, I was a little bit afraid that someone would t- was going to ask me, "What do you think of the Black Lives Matter movement?" And was, or someone was going to ask a question like that, and I would have ha- I would have to say, I stand behind it, hundred and three percent, with a margin of three percent margin of error. I stand behind it because, and the fact that you would ask me what I think about it tells me that you don't actually understand what the true intent of this movement is. Therefore, it's a waste of emotional of cognitive and emotional just like reserve for me to even argue with you. So then there's first and so there's that. Um, the next thing is the UK, I don't know what this what the reality is for now, but the UK was one of the first countries to have to have counter protest marches against the Black Lives Matter thing uh, um, protests. I don't know if it. Was, I don't know. Um, don't quote me fully on it. I'm not sure. But I know that there were counter protests. So obviously, there is something here that we are just, you know, looking and asking questions. Why are we asking questions when it's it's a thing of just, you know, what? I think I'm 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 good. Well,
3: yeah, and it, I think that <laughs> I'm going to challenge you, not challenge you a little bit here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in, a, I suppose, a little bit to answer Vanessa's question and also the students' question, and this is definitely informed by the fact that I come from, you know. The, the, the fields of psychology and in evolutionary psychology we conceptualize that the behavior the social cognition that bias and stereotyping and discrimination and racism bootstraps onto as kind of um in-group out-group biases and and they they it's argued that it harks back to kind of tribalism and things like that so taking what you what you know or you've been taught about psychological universalisms, you can understand how it's logical that the other group is going to feel the need i
4: fully i fully agree to, with you and this, and this is something i'm not
3: saying it's okay I'm no, no i fully
4: agree i fully agree with you and um do not miss do not mistake my enthusiasm for misunderstanding what the situation is this is something i walk around saying all the time i love evolutionary psychology and i do understand that Racism is just a is just categorization on steroids. Essentially, if a mm-hmm. pigeon see, if a pigeon sees a an animal with cane with um, canine, sharp canines and claws, I think it's safe to say that this thing will eat me because it's a carnivore. Therefore, I will fly. I don't, and it looks different to me. If you happen, you know, that that at a very very just like basic. That's exactly how humans are. We, because we don't have, an, we. It's really difficult to look at someone and be like, "I'm going to judge you individually. I'm not going to go off of any stereotypes. Stereotyping is literally just a quick, because it takes too much cognitive mm. reserve for us to like look at someone individual. Oh no, he. The trousers are this inch high from the this or that or whatever. Mm. Make these quick exemptions, and that's normal. That's that's categorization. That's a normal evolutionary thing. So I understand that, but at the same time, it doesn't negate the fact that this these, this process, this systematic racism, is having a an unfair effect on people like me. So because of that, whereas I accept and I know where it comes from, it's important to, you know, once you know where a problem comes from, it's very easy. It's a lot easier to sort of stomach it and to think about a, a way to solve it or to reroute it. And to reduce it as well, not to and allow to it reduce, to hurt exactly. you. I find it
3: psychologically protective to know that. And I know you know this, Yannick, I'm not coming for you. It's just we've got students potentially Mm. listening or listening who are from a different academic tradition that don't necessarily know the psychological mechanisms the way that That we do or that the literature suggests that they are. And I don't want them to feel any sense of sort of hopelessness, you know. Mm. And also, in this broader inclusivity Discussion. I know we're talking about Black Lives Matters now, but in the climate at the moment, there is a broader inclusivity discussion, and I'm not talking about all life matters. I mean, how do we make life more inclusive for people of all different classes, for disabled people, and this sort of thing? That broader inclusivity conversation. It's important for us to all know that we all psychologically can have the propensity to band to our in-group and to exclude the out-group. Of course.
0: Yeah, I suppose you're making a really interesting point in mean, the fact that it's it's an automatic natural experience for human beings to do this. But we're mm-hmm. also supposed to be more than our automatic human responses, you know? Th- and the, I yeah, think, and the we- first
3: thing is knowing
0: it. <laughs> yeah. What it's I'm always more amazed at is that people seem to be much more okay with being racist than called, cool. when, when they get called racist, they're really offended. And that's what I find really interesting about this kind of like legacy of pain is that it's, It's easy to ignore other people's pain, but when your own pain is brought in front of you, it's really upsetting. (laughs) Like, Well, maybe you could use your empathy to push that out, maybe include other people in that experience. I think it's it's a really challenging experience, I think. And I'm so glad that everyone has been just so open and just talking about this stuff, because I think it's really important for people to know this is part of health and well-being. You know, racism impacts everybody. There is nobody who comes out of a racist system okay. People who do better, as Yannick rightly said, but nobody is okay in the system. It's It's not healthy and it's not good for anybody for this system to continue. And I think nurses see it really clearly mental health nurses see the impact of racism on their colleagues and on on service users and in their societies and you know you have a place and a mandate to say that stuff and I think in in in, you know students are part of institutions aren't they of health systems and university systems and what you guys are all doing which is so so amazing is showing people there are things that you can do about this you don't just have to sit there feeling like this and I suppose we're going to get ready for finishing thoughts now and sort of go round. And um, <laughs> I appreciate now everyone's asking these great big questions. Everyone's like, my finishing thoughts got to be amazing. <laughs> don't, don't be pressured. <laughs> if there's anything, just a message you want to give out to people who are watching, just talking about mental health, health, well-being, students, this this whole range of discussion we're having. We'll whip round everybody um, and then um, finish up. Because this is one of the longest times I've ever talked and he has whizzed by. You know, and I wouldn't want people to think this is the only time we're ever going to talk about these issues because these issues impact everybody all the time. So, you know, don't feel that everything has to be said right now. We can circle back. We can focus in on different issues. It's really not a problem. We've got a lot of flexibility. So um, can I come around maybe start with with Bertha and then Vanessa, then Shanaz and Yannick? So Bertha, last last thoughts. <laughs> Makes it sound yes. like I'm going to chew everybody now. Does that last thoughts, <laughs> final words. <laughs> like, Anything you want to, to just bring to the fore? That-
2: yeah, I, I I think for me, my final words to um, BME nursing students out there, mm. is definitely, um, don't sit. You need to talk because you need to be a part of this change that it definitely needs to happen. Um, many organizations, mine included, are really acting on this, but we need every organization acting on this. So we need your bright ideas of how we can speed up the action as well. So your voice matters. It really matters. Give us your ideas. I'm on Twitter. You can um, send me even a private message if you've got any ideas or you'd love to come and visit our organization. And I think for I, I don't know. I think it might be unfortunate. We won't, We might not have very senior NHS leadership listening to this. But if anyone knows somebody, please do take the message to them that we need action because we don't want our passionate young students coming into organizations and not seeing people who look like them in leadership. For them to, aspire to also get to that, they need to see that it can happen for them. And it really, I work with a lot of newly qualified nurses. I teach on the preceptorship program. And when students come in, I find all the students, no matter what race they are, they are equally passionate, ambitious, enthusiastic, competent, equally skilled. So why does it change when the preceptorship finishes? Why does it change that in some places, people move up quickly and they stay static where they are? So yes, I'm I'm challenging every senior NHS leader in the country to really, I know you all have this appetite to to make change within your organization. So I'm saying yes, please do and please act. And for the students, things will change. Your stories will be different from my stories and those before me. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. But I'm about to storm a barricade then. <laughs> I do not know that Oh, just supposed to be doing something, Nikki. <laughs> Can we come to Vanessa? Then yeah, to just say before we head out.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much I could say, really listening to everyone. And I think that, yeah. you know, I need to reflect. But for me, I think similar to what I said when we ended the LGBT um event, and that's, you know, the colour of my skin's white, you know, and I'm very aware of that. Um, But I'm also a woman. And as a woman, you know, I've been in situations where I've clearly been discriminated against. Um, And I've always been someone that when there's been um, a women's party in the NHS, I've always said that we need men in the room as well, because we need male allies. And I'd say the same, that we need to use our white privilege as well. Um, we need to, you know, as Nikki said, have empathy. We need to be aware of structural racism because I think most people will say that they're not racist. Um, and a lot of racism is, you know, about ignorance. It's about not being culturally sensitive. Um, and again, you know, I've talked about prisons, but that's an area where, you know, you do see it a lot, um, where it's not so much that it's very, very subtle. Um, so I guess my message is really about... Um, You know, being aware of our own privilege, being allies. You know, using you know using um, our empathy skills, but also designing for inclusion as we've talked about. So starting with people, always starting with people's stories, um, rather than making assumptions about what we think, and then asking people once we've designed services or courses what they think, just so we can tick a box because. You know I'm gonna be honest I think that still goes on quite a lot and um you know and it needs to change and people talk about co-production but often you know it is still just a word so we need to really mean it when we're talking about it. I could say a lot more but I'm going to end there. But it's been a fascinating discussion and I feel like I've learned so much and there's a lot for me to take away and reflect on as well. Yannick
4: hmm. I uh this is a hard one. I uh, you
0: can refer us to your previous points if you prefer.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, I um things are. I would say just take care of yourself. Take care of yourselves. Um. At this point, with everything that's going on, self care is an act of radicalization. It's it's radical to to care for yourself. Um. It's it's. Um. If you're just like Berta said, um, when you're entering any sort of um, institution, just seek um, seek Oasis, um, places, safe spaces you could go, safe spaces you could um, sort of, um, and I'm mainly speaking to B- BME, um, any students just um, yeah, seek those spaces actively. As in, you can come in, be, and yes, you're very excited about the fact that you, um, um, that, yeah, it's new, you have a new course, and you're in there. Seek places like the Wobble Room that Shanaz is heading up. I think seek places like this. Seek seek places where you can be safe to be brave. Because, um, you know, safe spaces, there's no such thing as a safe space. Um, it's spaces where you're safe to be brave, because it's a very brave thing to sort of bring your experience, bring your, your, um, talk about the things that you go through and share personal things like that. So um, seek those spaces in order to ensure that you are able to achieve all the things that you want to achieve while in while you venture on this, on whatever journey you're actually on and where you're heading to. So I would say that, take care of yourself. So yeah, to so keep that in mind that you have to make it basically. So anything you need to do in order to make it in terms of, like, taking care of yourself and being careful, those are the things you need to do.
0: Good advice there. Absolutely. Um,
3: And lastly, Shanaz? Well, I would like to say that, first of all, Toni Morrison said racism is a distraction, guys. Don't allow yourself to be distracted. We're working so hard um, to create spaces where you can bring your, your full self to what you're doing, both in placement, both at university and all of the rest of it. Um, like what Vanessa said, I gave a, a talk the other day, at our internal conference around service design and how we can make that more authentic and more effective. So there are people pushing boundaries for you. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of chats like this um, around kind of the BME experience can get kind of like, oh, all of the things that are wrong. And it's not to negate the fact that we have a lot of challenges. But guys, always remember, our cultures are beautiful. My culture is beautiful. I love it. Um, my my perception of the black experience is beautiful um and remember you are so loved considering the barriers that we have as communities and sometimes as countries for you to be where you are at university um in the nhs where there's fabulous people like bertha thank you um who have paved the way for us some in academia too i'm making a point at the moment every time i meet Admirable black people in organizations to say thank you. Thank you guys for what you've enjoyed and how you, you've created the, the space for us, guys. Um, and there's loads of us, people like me and Yannick, we're, we're coming for those leadership positions too. We want doctorates yeah. so that when you come to university, you see yourselves in front of you teaching as well. And you guys can do that too. So just remember, keep pushing. Absolutely. And on that note, no one's going to top that, are
0: they? Let's just finish. But thank you so, so much. What an amazing panel. You're so generous. Um, really, really appreciate that. I know that your, your time and your experience are extremely valuable and hard-won things. So thank you very much for sharing them with us. Appreciate that. Mm, That's it for us tonight. You. Take care. Thank bye you. Bye-bye.